Well, uh, it's no secret that our emotions uh, can kind of be all over the map at Christmas. There are some of you that um, have just only good memories of this season, uh, and you maybe really look forward to this time of Christmas. Maybe it really brings out the best in your personality. And um, there are other people, though, uh, who for Christmas is maybe seems like there's kind of this black cloud that kind of hangs over it every year. Uh, it could be for a lot of different reasons. Maybe you've, you've lost a loved one or a friend uh, in that season, and every year that kind of brings back some emotions. For some of you, maybe getting together with family and the relational tension that might be there uh, kind of sucks some of the life and the joy out of that time. For others, maybe just the commercialism and the, the money and all that stuff kind of sours you a little bit uh, to Christmas or maybe just hampers your ability to really celebrate and enjoy this time. So there are many potential outside factors that, that could affect our abilities to, to worship uh, this season, but there also could be a lot of internal factors as well. You know, a lot of times kind of where we are in our journey with Christ at the time um, either helps or hinders our ability to really worship uh, during Christmas. Is our spirit currently right now, is our spirit alive? Is it in tune with God? Or are you in a place where uh, you're just struggling and uh, maybe filled with some doubt, um, having a hard time connecting with God and maybe other people as well? And really for all of us, um, you know, we've all been in one of those two places at different times on our journey. And if we haven't, we probably will be uh, at one time or another. This week's theme for Advent Conspiracy uh, is Worship Fully. Learning how to fully engage with the story of the coming of Christ in a way that draws our hearts and the hearts of those around us towards God and impacts the way in which we invest our time, we invest our money, uh, we invest our relational energy that we have during Christmas uh, and throughout the year, really. This is a season of Advent, and as, as I've explained before, because a lot of us didn't grow up going to church, didn't really know what Advent was, um, Advent is a time, a, a season of preparation. It's, it's the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day. It's supposed to be a time where we're, are, we're supposed to kind of slow down and prepare ourselves for the message of Christ once again. It's a season to, to make room in our hearts, to create space in our lives, to have an intimate impact with Christ in a way that hopefully will kind of reorient our souls for the year ahead. A season where we're reminded of God's tremendous love for us and what he was willing to go through and endure so that we might have life and the way he did it in very tangible and redemptive ways. Now, as John was just saying, uh, in the months leading up to the birth of Christ, the people of Israel, that nation, had been waiting uh, for this savior, this redeemer, this liberator for almost 2,000 years uh, to that point. The prophecies of the coming of Christ uh, really began in the Old Testament almost as soon as the fall of Adam and Eve. They started, the prophets started talking about, and you see just images of Christ, hints of his coming almost from the very beginning. Uh, in a lot of ways, um, this season also connects with us because we're also in a time of waiting. As Christians here, uh, we're in the midst of almost 2,000 year wait for the second coming of Christ. And so as we engage with, with that first story, we're also reminded of the second story that's true. And Paul reminds us 
uh, several times in his writings of the, the eventual return of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, he says this, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come. It will come like a thief in the night. He says that it's going to come, but it's going to come in an unexpected way. It's going to come uh, without warning, a lot like Christ's first coming. So he also tells us in Ephesians that while we're in the midst of this waiting, he says, be very careful then how you live. In Ephesians 5, he says, be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity that you have, because the days are evil. So we are called to live this life that we're in right now in a kind of a perpetual state of watchful readiness. That's what our life should be marked by. And so the season of Advent instructs us. It instructs us on how we're supposed to live while we're waiting for the return of Christ. He says that we're supposed to learn by studying and paying attention to the characters that are involved in the story, uh, whose lives were kind of intricately entwined with the birth narrative of Jesus. Because as we look at the characters of kind of the first story of the coming of Christ, we see a lot of humble and flawed people, a lot of people who are just like us, a group of people that were kind of caught off guard by all of these events and whose emotional reactions were all over the map as, as the agents of heaven kind of burst into humanity. So we're going to learn more about that today. The birth narrative of Christ actually begins <clears throat> with an announcement to a priest named Zechariah. I want you to open your Bibles today to, to Luke chapter 1. It's page 709 in your Bibles. <clears throat> Luke chapter 1, starting in uh, verse 5. It says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands, commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time of the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So we learn a lot about Zechariah in just those first few verses. We learn that he was a priest, he was serving the people, and that he was respected for his godly behavior. We learn that he and um, his wife Elizabeth, who was barren, um, they had no children. We also learned that you know, the possibility for that had long passed because they were just too old now. And so you can imagine the, the pain of that reality uh, the certainty, the finality of knowing that it's really not even a possibility anymore and how that probably affected their lives. It makes me wonder a little bit about, you know, if there were some dark moments in their faith, some dark seasons, even as people who were priests, um, where the fact that the, the doubt that probably accompanied their unanswered prayers or what seemed like unanswered prayers for a son, what that might have done to them. We also learn that Zechariah was chosen to go into the temple where only the priests could go um, and to burn incense before God. So inside the temple, there was this room called the Holy of Holies. It was where the, the Israelites 
um, believed the, the manifest presence of God was, and a priest would be chosen to go in there. Um, and actually to do what he was doing, because there was lots of different things you could do in there. You could you know, prepare sacrifices, make sacrifices. This burning incense thing was a, a very a privileged position. It was given to priests kind of by lottery, and so it was really kind of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And so you can imagine how excited Zechariah was when he went in there that day, realizing this is probably the only opportunity he's going to get to do something like that. And it says that there was a group of worshipers outside praying as he was in there. And that's kind of an important uh, fact, an important uh, piece of the story that we're going to get to here in a minute. I'm going to read verses 11 through 17. And I want you to be thinking of all of the different questions and thoughts that might have been rattling around in Zechariah's mind uh, as I read this passage. It says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled. He was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord." So what do you think he might have been thinking? He, he's in this, this altar. He's burning incense to God, probably praying. And all of a sudden, this angel appears next to him and gives him this story about his life that apparently, you know, the angel sounded pretty sure this stuff was going to happen. But what do you think was going through his mind while he was standing there that day? Yeah, Gary? <laughs> what does somebody mix with this incense, right? Yeah, maybe. Maybe they did a drug test when they came out to make sure that, yeah, whatever they're going to share was of sound mind, right? Yeah. What else? Yeah, Dan? You feel real, you might feel some pressure. All, this, all of a sudden, you've gone through your life with no kid, and all of a sudden they're telling you that this one child you're going to have, and you have to do all this stuff. Mm. Yeah, so there might be some just somewhat of pressure of, of the... the what, what this child was supposed to be, what he was supposed to become. Yeah, very good. Why did God wait so long to do this? Mm. Yeah, so maybe the timing of it, kind of questioning, you know, why now? Why is God just doing this now? Yeah. 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 Yeah, great. Basically, he said, you know, do we, I really want to open my heart again to the possibility of, of the, this happening? Um, maybe it's a, a wound that they'd already kind of tried to heal, and now God's kind of opening it up again. So, yeah, John? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, this, this, yeah, the sense that it's just not even possible. How could this even happen? 
You know, I, when, as I read through it, I kind of thought about it. It says, you know, it says, uh, Zechariah, we've heard your prayer. And I was like wondering, like, well, how long ago was that prayer? I mean, was it like 50, 60 years ago and now you're just hearing it, you know? Um, I think, too, just there's a lot of just interesting things in there. It says that this child is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. You know, the Holy Spirit was doled out very, um, very lightly in the Old Testament. There's only a few examples of people that were filled with the Spirit. It really wasn't until Christ's resurrection and ascension that God says, I'm going to pour out my Spirit on people. Um, so this was very unique. He also knew all the prophecies about this person that was supposed to be like Elijah that was going to go before. So he knew that, that, that with this child coming and that if he was going to be this person, that Jesus was also going to be coming. So, I mean, this is, this is triggering a lot of things for a priest, a Jew that knows all the prophecies of what's going to happen in his mind. And it's probably just uh, very overwhelming. So let's see how he responded in verse 18. It says, Zechariah asked the angel, how can this be? How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. So Zechariah, this priest, this really righteous man who everybody just admired, is standing in the presence of this angel and he responds with doubt. And you can imagine why, because none of it made any sense. <laughs> Everything that he was talking about here was going to require something very miraculous to happen. And as Diana was, was saying earlier, you know, it's, I don't think he was probably very keen on opening his heart again to the possibility that that he might actually get a son. He'd probably been disappointed and let down so many times in his prayers in the past. And we can all become a little guarded, can't we? When life doesn't really turn out the way we thought it was gonna be. When, you know, the randomness of living in kind of this broken and fallen world sometimes kind of interrupts our plans in ways that uh, leave us a little bit reeling from the results. And so his doubt, it says, is met with a consequence. This angel says that, that because you didn't receive this well, that you're not going to be able to talk until the birth of this child. And so let's see how the story ends. In chapter, I'm sorry, in verse 21. <clears throat> it says, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he would stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So when the priests come out of the temple... Uh, the reason why there's a crowd out there is because there's something that's supposed to happen. The priests are supposed to speak a blessing uh, over folks. And you can see uh, in Numbers uh, is, is the passage where the Lord gives a prayer to uh, Moses. And he says, tell this to the priests. We got that up there? Yeah. Numbers 6. This is what they're supposed to say. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you. And give you peace. And so the crowd is waiting for this blessing, but when, when he comes out, he can't speak. And so, you know, it's one of the byproducts sometimes of, of doubt is that other people around us are affected by that. 
that, that people were missing out on a blessing they were supposed to receive because of that doubt. And in his book, um, Adventures in Missing the Point, uh, Brian McLaren describes four stages of faith. And I really thought that they were pretty spot on in terms of what we kind of go through in our walk with God. The first stage that he talks about um, is the stage called simplicity. And he says it's where everything is easy, black and white, known or knowable. And when I think back when I was 16 years old and first received Christ, the message of the gospel seemed really simple to me. You know, I was a sinner, Jesus died for me, and I could have forgiveness and eternal life through him if I prayed this prayer. And, and it all just seemed very black and white. And it's like, okay, I, I can understand that. I can get my arms around that. And then he says the second phase, though, is what he calls this season of complexity. It says the scenario has gotten more complex, so now you focus on techniques of finding the truth. And I know for me, as I went through college and, and I started reading the Bible and going to church and hearing all these things, all of a sudden, everything got a lot more complex. And for one thing, I didn't understand most of what the Bible was talking about because it was about these Jews and they had all these different things. And, and then there was all these different um, you know, viewpoints you hear, well, all Christians are against this or they're for that. And so I'm trying, well, what, am I, what do I believe? And if I believe this, then is it in the Bible? How, how could I back that up if I'm having a conversation with somebody? And, and all of a sudden, what was this simple message at Young Life Camp you know, became really complex and confusing at times. And then there's this third phase he calls perplexity. He says, in this phase, you become a disillusioned learner. You doubt all absolutes, all authority figures, everything seems relative and hazy. And what I kind of compared that to was, you know, times in our journey where, where maybe we go through some troubling things and it just doesn't match up with what we thought we knew about God and about the Bible. And so we don't really know what to do with it. We don't know how to explain it. We're not sure that these emotions or feelings that we're having of doubt or confusion are, are right or not. Um, and it's just, it's just a perplexing time. And then the fourth stage, he says, we go through is what he calls maturity. He says, a friend has pointed out that this stage would be better called humility. Because in this stage, you come to terms with your limitations and learn to live with mystery. Not as a cop-out, but as an honest realization that only God understands everything. You carry out stage four. carry out of stage four a shorter list of tested and cherished beliefs than you entered faith with back in simplicity. A lot of your previous dogmas that you grasped tightly, you now hold lightly and loosely. You know, another way of describing those four stages that I've also heard is describing them in terms of stages of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Uh, just another way to really kind of describe the same thing. But McLaren goes on to describe the process like this. He says, in a sense, a person keeps finding faith and then becoming frustrated with it, and in a sense, losing it and then finding a better version of it, and so on, something like a software upgrade. At least that's what's happened for me. At this stage in my life, I've sifted and re-sifted. Some beliefs I've released, others have proven themselves as keepers. Can you relate to that? As I look back over following Christ now for, I don't know, a lot of years, 25 or 6 or so, whatever it is, I, I can think about some of the things that I used to believe about God, about the Bible, about people, about myself, and I've come to find over time as I've gotten more mature and things have gotten complex and I've sought the word that I was just wrong on some things. And so I've had to let go of some stuff because it just wasn't right. And I've grasped onto some new things. But I also am a little bit more humble because I used to be really sure of some things when I was young. 
And now I realize, you know, there's a lot more mystery to this than I thought. Um, and so there's some humility that's come from that. And so I don't know what version I'm on now, like 18.0 or, you know, what version of my understanding of the gospel, but I'm sure it's going to change quite a bit more even as we get older. And McLaren goes on to talk about how Jesus, when he entered into uh, the nation of Israel at the time, you can go ahead and take that down. Um, he entered into a time where these religious leaders had just filled people with so many different rules and laws that weren't even in the Bible about how you're supposed to live and what, became, what you know, made you righteous or not. And it became this, this weight, this burden for the people. And so Jesus enters into that. And it says that he took all, of these, all this complexity and he boiled it down to some real simple things for people. And people asked him, you know, what, 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 should, what rules and laws do I need to keep? And he said, listen, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said, the whole law is summed up in those two things. And so he took what was complex and he made it simple again. And I'm sure it was a real breath of fresh air for a lot of the people in his day. And I would venture to guess that Zechariah was in a season of perplexity in a season of kind of disorientation over some of the surprising and kind of tragic events of his own life and in the presence of the angel of the Lord. And maybe some of you can kind of relate to that season of life that he might have been in where, where you wanted to believe some things might be true, but you just had a hard time based on some of your past experiences. And at this point in the narrative, all of a sudden, the, the writer of Luke takes a break from his story, and he hops over and starts talking about this story of one of Zechariah's relatives who was experiencing kind of a similar encounter. So let's see what we can learn from Mary. If you look in verse 26 of chapter 1, it says, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. So initially, her reaction is pretty much the same as Zechariah's. In the presence of this angel, it says that uh, Zechariah was startled and gripped with fear. It says that Mary, likewise, was greatly troubled. And then the angel lays out this story for her. And in so many words, he basically says to her, hey, you're going to become pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and you're going to give birth to this son. And this son that you're going to give birth to, he's going to be the king. He's going to be the Messiah that we've all been waiting for for 2,000 years. And, and God has chosen you, this unlikely, teenage, unwed woman. And just like in Zachariah's case, what this angel was proposing to her was completely outside the realm of possibility, whether you're an old, barren woman or 
a young virgin, neither one of you can get pregnant. And so both of these situations are kind of ripe for doubt. But Mary's reply to the angel had a little bit different feel to it than Zacharias did. She wasn't so much doubting that it could happen, but she was really just kind of asking God, how are you going to make it happen? How are you going to pull it off? And when the angel explains how it will happen, it's all kind of filled with the miraculous still. But she replies that she's ready and willing to serve. There's no consequences for, for doubts like there were for Zechariah. It's just simple obedience. Simple obedience from a young girl who probably is, is young enough that she hasn't experienced a lot of disappointments in life yet to the point where she doubts that God can do whatever he wants to do. Now, for Joseph, the guy that she's kind of betrothed to be married to, I bet he experienced some disorientation at the troubling circumstances of Mary, right? And it kind of made me, it reminded me of that old I Love Lucy show, right? Ricky Ricardo on there, he'd always say, Lucy, you got some splaining to do, right? I think that's probably what uh, Joseph might have said to Mary. Hey, you got some explaining to do, all right? We're not sure how we're going to cover this one up. So she might have been in that place of simplicity. He was probably in a place of perplexity at the same time. The story did get a lot more complicated for Mary, though, didn't it? I mean, what might have been kind of a simple response from a, from a teenage girl at the time to just trust God, obviously, as Jesus grew up in his life and the circumstances of life became really troubling, I bet that there was a time of complexity in her life of understanding what God was doing. I bet that she was pretty perplexed as she watched the son that she loved hang on the cross. I bet there was a time where she questioned God and said, this, this is your plan for redeeming the world to to kill my kid and, and to break my heart. But those painful moments are kind of a long way away from the, the young girl we find in Luke chapter 1. Zechariah's son was eventually born. And the story goes on and, and, and Zechariah makes sure that he's obedient and, and names this uh, kid John because I'm sure he's thinking, well, what if I don't do the right thing this time? I might lose an arm or an eye or who knows what. And it says that when he was obedient to give his son the name John, it says his tongue was loosed, and it says he began to speak, praising God. So Zechariah and Mary <clears throat> had two very different initial responses, two very different seasons of faith that they were in. One reaction was not necessarily better than the other. They were just simply reflections of where they were at on their faith journey. But the amazing part of both of their stories is that they, their stories merge in a very similar fashion. I want you to take a look in your Bible at Luke chapter 1. I want you to just look at the headings of the different sections. What do you notice that's similar in the response that Mary and Zechariah had just by looking at the headings? What did they both do? They both wrote a song, and they sang. You see the titles, Mary's Song and Zechariah's Song. They both worshiped the Lord. They took two very different routes to get there, didn't they? But they both had their paths merge in praise. And sometimes for us, the, the route to worship is simple and quick and sure, and sometimes it kind of reflects a season that we're in of simplicity or of, of orientation in our lives where things seem to make sense. Sometimes the route to worship is cautious and circuitous. It takes us a while to get 
there. And the same would go probably for us at Christmas. Sometimes worshiping for us at Christmas is really easy. It's easy to get into the mood. For other times, it's incredibly difficult. And sometimes, like I said, it reflects a lot of different things that might be going on in our lives. And it's not so much whether or not we experience seasons of disorientation or doubt or perplexity, but it's where those troubling times lead us. What do we do with it? You see, because doubt can be a doorway to spiritual growth if we're willing to kind of push through it and, and instead of running away from God, kind of lean into him in the midst of that time. And you know, as I thought about it, kind of with what we're doing here with Advent Conspiracy, the truth is that it ought to trouble us that the very things that we're raising money for during this Christmas season don't have to be happening, or at least at the rate that they are. It ought to trouble us that we're raising money to provide access for clean water to people when there's plenty of money in the world and plenty of water in the world to make that happen. But that thousands of people are dying yearly because of this very solvable problem. It ought to trouble us that children are being abandoned at alarming numbers all over the world. Sometimes they're being abandoned and orphaned because their parents are dying from diseases that we can either prevent or treat with medication if we can just get it into the hands of those people. Sometimes it's wars. Sometimes it's just simple neglect. To simply write our checks and happily go about our business, even though that's a great step in the right direction, is at least care. It seems a little bit disgenuine of a response if it doesn't involve us kind of putting ourselves in other people's shoes who are dealing with these things simply because there's just this discrepancy in our world, this disparity economically. It ought to cause us to pray. It ought to cause us to wrestle, to, to think about some of the injustices that are going on in our world and say, why? <laughs> Am I doing everything I, I can do to help with those situations? There ought to be some perplexity at Christmas. So no matter where this life finds you, this Advent season, no matter where you see yourselves kind of on that continuum of faith that we were talking about before, those four stages, the call of Advent is to study the characters of that first Christmas. Because there we learn to worship and receive. There we learn to trust in the promises of God. And we trust him when he calls us to love beyond what feels possible, to forgive beyond what feels possible, to grow in generosity beyond what feels possible. And above all else, we worship. Because worship has a way of kind of reorienting us in, in, in ways that few other things can and bringing all of kind of our scattered emotions we might be feeling in, in line with what God has for us. And so what does it look like for you to worship fully this Advent season? So that you don't get to the end of this season and look back and say, man, did I miss Jesus? Nobody wants that. As we close today, we're going to be singing a song called Magnificat. And really, it's just uh, Mary's song from Luke chapter 1. And so I hope that you can connect with her heart a little bit as we sing this. And I really want to open up this time to you as well. If you're a person right now that just 
Maybe it's a little bit like Zechariah. You're having a hard time just kind of believing and grasping kind of the promises of what Christmas is supposed to bring us. You're just struggling. We want to just be here for you. We want to open up uh, this time for you to pray. Um, if you want to come up front, I'd be happy to pray with you. Um, if you just want to come up yourself and just kind of kneel down uh, at the altar, you're welcome to do that as well as the song plays on. But I would encourage you to just not ignore the Spirit's promptings of what He might be saying to you, what's been going on in your life, that you wouldn't walk out of here today because it won't take long, folks. It won't take long until the demands of your day and the shopping, whatever you've got going on is going to just distract you and bring you right back. I'd really encourage you to respond right now to what, what is the Holy Spirit doing in your heart? How does he want to respond? You just respond to him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the many different angles, the many different characters that you brought into the story of your birth, the, the Zacharias and the Marys and the shepherds and the, the Magi and King Herod and all of these different people who give us such a panoramic view of, of what's going on when this just surprising heavenly moment kind of broke in to planet Earth. And God, we see ourselves in so many of these different people not really sure how to respond sometimes to you and struggling to grasp onto your promises and believe it and just that kind of simplicity like Mary had. Lord, sometimes it takes us a while to kind of rebound like Zachariah who kind of initially responded with doubt but then in the end was obedient. Wherever we find ourselves, God, I pray that you would just draw our hearts to you. God, that you would meet us and then just remind us of what's true. Help us to grasp again maybe to the simplicity of, of our faith and of your story. And so we give you this time, God. We give you our hearts. Whatever it is that you want to share with us, we, we're open to that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and stand with us as we close today.